Welcome to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. My name is Marvin and over the next two hours we will learn about the challenges of sepsis management in low and middle income settings with perspectives from Kenya, Brazil, China, India and South Africa. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to our colleague Dr. Satish Bhagwanji from the United States to get started. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I guess we're talking to people from all across the globe. Welcome, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to be involved in this fascinating new way of meeting people across the globe. Um, my name is Seth Bhagwanji, and I'll be chairing this session. Um, I wanted to talk for a few seconds about the unique nature of the problems that are faced by folks in low- and middle-income settings and then introduce our first speaker. We're well aware that huge limitations in human capacity and infrastructure make the delivery of healthcare in low-income settings a major challenge. Add to this the unique characteristics of the problems of sepsis, and we indeed have a very special problem. We are pleased to have a bunch of experts around the group today who are going to talk to us and allude to the problems in very specific areas. The first speaker is Catherine Maitland, who is Professor of Pediatrics at the Imperial College London. She's based full-time in East Africa, in Kenya in particular, where she leads a research group with a major focus on malaria, bacterial sepsis, and malnutrition in children. And Catherine's going to speak to us about the challenges of sepsis management in Africa. Thank you, Catherine. Um, thank you very much. Um, um, so, just to re really reiterate, um, the, the, um, I am a pediatrician, uh, so, the, so the, the talk that I'll be giving is largely from the pediatric perspective. Um, Africa is a large country, um, and obviously I, the, the focus of my talk is really sub-Saharan Africa, um, where there is... Uh, um, where uh, the vast majority of hospitals outside of the capitals are hospitals with li limited infrastructure and where there is no access to ventilation. Um, specifically, I've been based, um, um, as the, uh, the, uh, the chair said, in East Africa for the last 16 years, working in the countries of Kenya, Uganda, um, and Tanzania. So, sepsis, um, you might think... Uh, it's, it's well-defined and you understand what sepsis means. But in Africa, there's a great many diseases that are infectious diseases. Most of them are largely neglected diseases um, and covered um, in very august tomes such as Manson tropical diseases. And most of them will never come to the attention of the rest of the world except for what happened um, um, over the last um, couple of years um, where we had a, a disaster that occurred in West Africa but actually it had consequences globally and you can see how a condition that was normally a condition that um, in re relatively remote communities it got into the capital cities of these countries affected and yet it affected um, economically and also in terms of tourism and economically the whole of Africa um, where, um, where just three countries were affected um, and nothing outside. So you can see what can happen. So let's go back to what you would understand of the, the sepsis definitions um, that defined 
earlier this year um, this, with this, by the international consensus definitions. Um, I'm not sure I'm not the only person to point this out, that there's no females included in those definitely under-representation of people who, um, um, and of people um, working and living in uh, um, places such as um, Africa. So it's just the SOFA scores and how, actually applying those um, to the emergency rooms in Africa. Remember, this is, these are scores that cannot be applied in intensive care units and resource poor settings. Um, and you might think, well, actually, they look relatively simple. I'm sure you could collect some of these data, but really, this slide's just really to show that actually, certainly for those who have abnormal SOFA scores um, that's re and that requires um, definitions by ventilation or definitions by inotrope support, it's simply just not relevant for Africa. What we do say, so if you think of an emergency room, you think of a nice, shiny, organized um, uh, room with uh, instruments that go beep. But really, in, and the reality in Africa is where this is the last three, um, this is the last hours of admissions all on one emergency table. We've got no machines that go beep. And uh, really, uh, good clinical acumen is the best that you've um, got to uh, try and keep children alive. So what has really happened in, um, in this, we have a, um, recommendations for management of our children in, uh, in uh, resource-limited hospitals, where there's a vertical and um, syndromic management with uh, diseases uh, siloed into separate diseases. But in the, in the whole book, there is no mention of the word sepsis. And just to reiterate, obviously the leading causes of um, under five mortality are largely infectious disease. What might just, um, um, although you might think, well, actually, is it all HIV? In fact, actually, only of um, mortality in Africa is uh, associated with HIV. And actually that figure, although it says 6% there, has, has substantially improved over the last um, four to five years. It's down to less than 4% of, of childhood deaths in Africa. So the main causes of, of deaths are um, uh, the common diseases like pneumonia, um, diarrhea, and, mal um, and malaria. So and just to reiterate that um, obviously sepsis is not highlighted as a treatment priority. Um, it's um, talking about vertical um, guideline management and it's the disproportionate attribution of the pneumonia syndrome. Basically, it's the critically sick child um, and I just want to go and describe um, that in the next few uh, slides. Um, in malaria endemic Africa, most children will carry parasites, so at least 50% of children coming to hospital will be parasitized, but actually they may not be actually having a new malaria infection. 10% of, um, of those will have bacterial co-infection, and um, it has been estimated that a third of malaria deaths in hospital are due to bacterial infection, yet most hospitals lack the microbiological facilities, so antibiotics are prescribed blind. So let's just go back to the pneumonia definitions. Um, just largely, again, these are clinical definitions, not really tested, um, and there has been a revision in 2012 where they collapsed very severe pneumonia into um, uh, um, severe and severe pneumonia into one category, where oxygen is now recommended for all of these children. 
Um, if we actually look at this uh, clinically, we, um, we have a, a program that actually collects all hospital admissions, has a systematic um, way of uh, uh, admission, and all the data is collected systematically. And if we look at 13,000 systematically un unselected hospital admissions, at least 36% would fulfill severe pneumonia definitions, yet only 16% had severe pneumonia actually uh, as a final diagnosis. So indicating this is non-specific for pneumonia, but also if you just targeted oxygen to those children, you would actually miss a lot of uh, children who are hypoxemic. So the high hidden burden of hypoxemia. Looking at the etiology of uh, infectious etiology of um, pneumonia, that has been a, a focus of a, a large multi-center study that we'll be reporting later this year. The pilot study of that was done in Khaleesi by Hannah et al. And so just, and really what that showed that even although it's, it's the clinical syndrome suggests that this is a, a very, very high burden, actually the recent the case control studies suggest that only 9% of those actually have an identifiable pathogen. So, so the implications of that is that actually vaccine reduction of that intolerable burden of pneumonia may have little impact at the clinical level, but also the fact that there's many of the children being targeted with uh, oxygen, if you just use clinical criteria, then you may be using a lot of oxygen which has substantial cost implications for health services. And, you know, you'd think that most hospitals would be rolling out, and you'd, you'd, they're, although um, using pulse oximetry to define those who've got hypoxemia has been recommended for well over a decade. Most hospitals are not using this um, highlighted by work by Mike English's group um, across tw 22 hospitals looked at in um, 2012. Only 3% said that they had a pulse oximeter. Moving over to bacterial etiology, what is the commonest causes of uh, uh, bacterial infection in Africa? Well, you'll be so, um, surprised to see that um, this is, uh, once again, we have to go. So there's very few, there are relatively limited um, uh, data on this, but uh, this was um, done in Khaleesi um, prior to, um, to Haemophilus influenzae vaccine and streptococcal, uh, a strep um, rollout, um, and the Khaleesi is not in the um, meningococcal belt, that we see that the and commonest bacteremias are largely gram-negative and staph aureus after these two um, um, uh, um, organisms have been eliminated by vaccination. Um, yet the antimicrobial treatment guidelines are often based on epidemiological data that's well over a decade old. So it's, it, it, it's out of step with what is actually happening at the bedside. And just to, to reiterate that this is not just, just being seen in Khaleesi, that this is a systematic review showing how common invasive non-typhoidal salmonella is across Africa. It's, um, it's, it's one of the commonest causes of bacterial infection and associated with a case fatality have been 20, between 20 and 25% in adults and children. In adults, the main risk factor is HIV, whereas in children, um, both malaria and um, HIV and malnutrition are the main risk factors. It's, this is invasive salmonella, so it usually presents without enterocolitis um, as a, a presenting feature. Um, and this, this is just showing you the systematic review that uh, from North Africa, East Africa, Southern and West Africa, the commonest organisms are salmonella. What is the implication? So obviously a third of the deaths for, for malaria and bacterial co-infection are, are due to, um, uh, a third of the malaria deaths are due, due, 
bacterial co-infection. The current, the current guidelines for malaria is that all children with severe, suspected severe malaria infection should receive a, um, um, broad-spectrum antibiotics until the bacterial infection is excluded and should be based on um, culture and sensitivity results or local antibiotic sensitivity patterns. But as I said, that most hospitals, most hospitals lack these services and there is little or no national data on antibiotic resistance patterns. Therefore, antibiotics tend to be given blind and often in a short course, which is usually inadequate to treat non-typhoidal salmonella and just reiterating the high case fatality associated with this disease. We see that um, bacterial infection um, in children um, who don't have any recent malaria or, um, or have um, um, no malaria at admission to hospital is, is across the spectrum with an um, equal proportion of gram-positive and gram-negative. But as soon as a child is admitted to hospital who's had recent evidence of malaria or um, um, evidence of plasmodium falciparum parasitemia, what one sees is a switch to that spectrum um, um, from um, sort of gram-positives to increasingly more and more enteric-derived gram-negative infections, which, again, has, is a challenge in terms of what antibiotics should um, be used. So antibiotics stewardship, just bringing us to this, this is something that's largely untaught. It's largely there's a li very little conscience about um, this um, and but this is going to have huge implications, not only for antibiotic resistance, but also anti-malarial um, anti resistance and also anti-TB. Um, there's an estimated over 7,000 um, globally with um, dr drug resistance for these major conditions, and this is predicted to rise, with Africa and Asia being the most predicted to be affected. So this is on the rise that we need to really think about antibiotic stewardship, but this is not part of... The, the sort of con um, consciousness of uh, current guidelines. And really, finally, back to the sort of what's gonna, what is going to sustain children, uh, uh, basically the standard emergency treatments given in the emergency rooms. Most of them have not been tested in clinical, um, uh, uh, in clinical trials, rather similar to actually Western settings, yet uh, we have been made able to make some progress in this area. I want to um, end with a positive note that uh, doing trials of these simple therapies are important because we came up with a surprise result that actually fluid bolus therapy did not um, improve outcome. Um, and actually mortality was much, much greater in children who had sepsis and compared to uh, when you looked at the fluid bolus arms compared to controls. Um, so that's my last slide. Um, thank you very much. Great, Kate. Thank you so much. Um, I noted two questions that came through, um, and perhaps we can start with the first question, which is, can we give vaccines to children affected by pneumonia, and if not, when should we use vaccines? Well, it's, it'll be very interesting to see the results of the PERCH study, which I said will be presented later this year in November, and hopefully the results will be out by the end of this year and um, uh, or at the beginning of next year. And what's really quite interesting, that even although uh, haemophilus influenzae and also um, these, the, the new pneumococcal vaccines have been rolled out into these, these communities, uh, 
um, you're still seeing a large uh, mortality associated with pneumonia, yet most of it is not, um, the etiology of pneumonia is, is, is um, largely not going to be affected by vaccine-preventable uh, um, or does that uh, help, um, or does that answer the, 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 um, the, the question? Yes, I think that's helpful, Kate. Thanks. Um, the next question was about the, um, the new sepsis definition. And the question was, has the new sepsis definition been adopted by the WHO? I, well, I, I can't um, talk for the WHO, but I know that the, 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 from the pediatric side, um, I think that there is some challenges with um, uh, using those definitions for sepsis. Certainly in the emergency room, um, obviously you would have to have access to good diagnostics and they're often lacking. Um, and I think, you know, I think some of these definitions do need to be um, validated in these settings before just simply adopting them. There's other conditions such as malaria um, and uh, other um, issues that may actually uh, affect the, the validity of those um, definitions. And obviously, a definition that includes uh, a scoring that uh, includes uh, um, you know, the, the actual use of inotropes as, as part of the score or response to ventilation, um, it really simply won't be very... Um, generalizable in um, settings where you have limited resources. Right. Okay, Kate, okay, one more question. Um, the question is about WHO strategies to help those countries that are most affected. Any comment about that? Um, I mean, I think... Uh, I, I, it's a, that's a quite a difficult uh, question to answer. Um, I think WHO uh, um, reviews their guidelines and updates them every so often, and I think um, it's obviously up to countries to either you know review them or um, uh, or adapt them to, to local use. I think one of the major issues is that this is you know quite often a silent. Uh, uh, the, the sort of silent um, emergency because um, as, set, as the word sepsis is not even included in the WHO guidelines, I think actually making progress on something like this um, is going to be quite difficult. Great. And one last question, Katie, which I think is an important one. How do you switch from broad-spectrum empiric therapy to targeted antimicrobial regimens without being able to do Cultures. And I think that that is a fantastic question. I think, um, I think trials need to be done to see whether we can use uh, um, just simple uh, uh, point-of-care testing, CRP, uh, procalcitonin, to see whether we could actually, or even um, a mixture of that and clinical criteria, um, to see whether we could actually identify those who actually had culture-positive uh, um, sepsis in places where you can and um, you've got high quality um, microbiological facilities and if we're able to establish those in the context of a clinical trial um, then I think that they, they would be your best, next best uh, um, ways in which we could actually um, target broad spectrum empiric therapy.
Great. Thank you so much, Kate, and thank you to those who participated by sending me those questions. Um, we need to move on to our second speaker for the session. And our second speaker is Flavia Mercado. He's Professor of Intensive Care and Chair of the Intensive Care Session of Anesthesiology, Pain, and Intensive Care at the Federal University of Sao Paulo in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And Flavia has been working with the Latin American Sepsis Institute uh, producing some amazing work on what's going on with sepsis in Latin America. Flavia is going to speak to us about the challenges of sepsis management in Latin America. Thank you so much, Flavia. Hi, Seth. Thank you for the opportunity. That's a great uh, chance to discuss with you the main challenges we have. Uh, in fighting sepsis in, uh, in our environment. And I want to focus this presentation in five major points. The first one, the first major issue is the absence of data. We simply don't know what's going on. If you PubMed words like epidemiology, mortality, quality improvement, uh, and the name of the countries in Latin America, you're going to find very few data, most of them coming from Brazil. And even in Brazil, we are just starting to know this disease better. Last year, we did a one-day prevalence study. We divided Brazil in 10 strata, and we randomly uh, selected 50% of all Brazilian ICU, ICUs, and we asked them uh, to look at that, that single day what's going on. And you find out that uh, at that given moment, 30% of all Brazilian ICUs were occupied with septic patients currently with organ dysfunction, which represents a major burden of this disease. And also, we've, we found out that the mortality rate was incredibly uh, high. It was 55.7%. A second major point is the resource limitation, even in a rich, middle-income country like Brazil. Uh, during spread, we uh, asked the institutions to answer uh, a viability, a resource availability uh, questionnaire, and uh, we created a score with eight items that we considered relevant to treat sepsis in the first six hours. These were simple things, and we defined as a lower viability institution those who had five or less of these eight items. And we were surprised to know that 32% of all public Brazilian institutions were considered lower viability as compared with only 7% of the private ones. And the most important thing is that in our multivariate analysis, being in an institution with lower viability of resource was associated to a two-fold rise in the mortality rate. The third major issue is access to ICU. As you might know, Brazil has two different healthcare systems, the public and the private one. The public is free, free for any Brazilian. Uh, however, when you look at the availability of ICU beds yeah, for the public system, you can find that, it's 7 point, that there are 7.6 beds for 100,000 people, while in the private system you have 25.5. And this inequality is even higher in our north and northeast states, which are our poorest states. When you talked about access to ICU, it's also relevant to see what is going on with the patients that are in the ER. We have a subset of the LASI hospitals, 
uh, where we studied it better, nine public hospitals in Sao Paulo. I'm not talking about the north and northeast. I'm talking about the biggest city in Latin America. And these nine public hospitals, when you analyze 1,600 ER patients, we find out that at least almost 1,000 of them stayed in the ER for the first 24 hours without getting transferred to the ICU. The variables associated with staying in, in the ER instead of being transferred to the ICU were age, having cancer or immunosuppression, and being less sick. The mortality rate for those patients who stayed in the ER were 42%, while those transfers transferred were, was 51%. However, when adjusted this to the severity of illness, certainly the ER patients that stay in the ER had a higher mortality. Another great and big issue in Brazil is the transfers between hospitals. Sometimes the patient uh, has his first care in one hospital and it has to be moved to another one. Then we studied this in the subset of 6,000 patients from LASI database, and we find out that the mortality rate of the patients who were transferred was 42% as compared with 32% of mortality on those patients that were primarily taking care in the institutions they were admitted to. And it's interesting to see that this difference between uh, transferred and non-transferred patient was only significant for the private hospitals. In the public hospitals, we could not find any difference. Maybe this is because the mortality rate of those non-transferred patients is also very, very high, 41%. The fourth major problem is the low awareness among lay people. Low awareness leads to delay in searching for care, and this is a major issue for us. LASI has conducted a survey among 2,000 people around 134 cities in Brazil, and we asked those people if they have ever heard the word sepsis, and the answer was yes only for 6.6% of them. This is very different, for instance, from the 40% or 44% that we find for German and United States. And of course, this leads to problems because people will not look for care. This, day, this World Sepsis Day uh, this year, we are focusing on uh, raise awareness among lay people. We created a COMEX, and it was a very nice one, and it can be found in our website, uh, on our Facebook, and also in our website. And also, we made a, a video that is currently in our Facebook and the website, and this video was amazing success. We already have more than 120,000 120, uh, visualizations and almost 6,000 shares, which means that people are very, very interested in knowing better what's going on with sepsis. But I would say that the biggest issue is uh, healthcare professionals' knowledge and awareness. This is a problem because when you have healthcare professionals that are not aware about the sepsis, this will lead to a low quality of care. And the problem in, I think, most of the middle-income countries is that it's very hard to train people. And this is also associated with a high turnover mainly among public institutions. And this will certainly lead and will certainly compromise our ability to give proper care. LASI has been training hospitals in Brazil 
for uh, the last 10 years. We have now a database with uh, more than 40,000 patients. And uh, we analyze the part of this database, which was our uh, previous software that ran until 2014, and we pick up 21,000 patients that came from institutions that stay in the campaign for at least one year. And what we're able to show is that the mortality rate did drop from 54%, which, as you might uh, see, it's similar to the spread mortality rate, to something around 40% after four years of campaign. But a major issue is that this reduction in mortality did happen only in the private institutions and not in the public ones. In the public ones, we have a drop in mortality for in the first semester, but after that, it rises again for the baseline levels. It's interesting to know that in spread, we are not able to find a difference in mortality between public and private institutions, which means that we run, when we randomly look at these institutions, they are more or less the same. But here, in large database, we are deal, dealing with institutions that are uh, in a quality improvement process which means uh, that it seems that in the private institutions, this quality improvement process is successful, but not maybe it's more difficult in the public institutions. And we look again to that network of nine public hostels in Sao Paulo, and uh, we see that among these nine institutions, only two were able to reduce mortality. And we compare the successful with the unsuccessful institutions. We find out that the compliance with the six-hour bundles increased in both institutions similarly. However, when you look at the time for sepsis diagnosis, which means the time that takes to the healthcare system to look at this patient and see that that organ dysfunction was related to sepsis, it was very high in the beginning and it dropped significantly in the successful institutions. This uh, means that we need to raise awareness, we need to, to, to have an early diagnosis of sepsis. And in this context, we are very worried about what the sepsis 3.0 new definitions uh, can, uh, can, if they can be or not applied in our countries. Of course, we don't have time to discuss all the things related to sepsis 3.0, but we want to stress a single point, which is the QSOFA. Although the authors of the sepsis 3.0 has clearly stated that this score should not be used before being adequately and prospectively validated, some people are just starting to use it in the ERs. And this is because there's this figure in the paper showing that if you have the Q-SOFA higher than two, then you need to access for organ dysfunction, and then if you find the SOFA score, you can do the diagnosis of sepsis. Let's remember that the Q-SOFA contains three items, reduced uh, level of conscience, high potential, and high uh, uh, breath rate. Uh, when uh, we look at this, uh, we can certainly agree that the Q-SOFA is a, uh, a good marker for disease severity, which means that it's predicted of death. But we are not sure that a, that a score that can predict death can be used as a screening tool because prediction means 
a, a, a balance between specificity and sensitivity. And a screening tool has to have sensitivity. Then we are looking at this in LASI database, and I'm going to show you very preliminary data that is coming from our hospitals. And I have to emphasize that this is preliminary data. It might change because people are just getting used to collect QuizSofa. But anyway, during, from May to July this year, we collect almost 2,000 patients uh, in this in 55 institutions. All these patients have sepsis or septic shock, which means that they have infection plus at least one organ dysfunction. As you can see, the rocky curve for the QSOFA is good. However, as predicted, because this is a good severity score. However, among these almost 2,000 patients, 60% were QSOFA negative. And they have a mortality rate that can be as high as 42% in the public institutions. It is 30%, 13% in the private ones. But we have to remember that this is LASI database, which means these are the best private institutions we have. And if the mortality rate in the spread is not different from public and private, using QSOFA as a screening strategy can miss almost 60% of the severe U patients with a high mortality rate. QSOFA, or at least its components, are not a new thing. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign, LASI, and thousands of people around the world are using the components of the QSOFA to screen for sepsis in the wards and the emergency rooms because we look at hypotension, mentation, or tachypnea. However, we look at the, for any of these components and not for two of these components, as suggested by QSOFA. In conclusion, I would say that we need to improve our knowledge about sepsis in Latin America. We will not be able to solve the resource issue, but we might change budget priorities if we raise awareness among healthcare workers. We will not be able to solve the ICU availability as well. However, we can train patient, uh, uh, nurses and doctors in the wards and the emergency uh, rooms. Increasing lay people awareness is a key step they will, they will, this will lead to an early search for care and can also help to put a such, a, such pressure uh, in the government. However, if you don't improve awareness among healthcare workers and use a very sensitive screening tool, we will, none of these strategies will succeed. Thank you. Thank you so much, Flavia. That was uh, excellent. Um, I see some very good questions coming up, and I'd like to ask you to tackle this one, uh, which is very pertinent to the point you just made. The question is, how do you motivate physicians to improve their knowledge on sepsis? I would say that uh, we need to have our own data, data, epidemiological data on our own countries because the best way to uh, motivate people is just showing how deadly this disease can be. This is what LAS is doing now in Brazil. We are just trying to spread the knowledge that this disease is deadly, that it is related to 55% mortality rates, and also that early identification and adequate treatment can lead to a better survival rate. And I think that this is the way to motivate people. Uh, when you, we have this uh, video uh, on Facebook with uh, almost 6,000 shares, this, is, uh, this, this means that people are willing to have these sorts 
of inf uh, this kind of information. And I think that this is the way just to spread knowledge. Another important question I see here is, do you think that a limitation of the quick sofa score is the inaccurate measurement of the spiritual rate? Yeah, it might be. Some of our hosts are just reporting us that they were not able uh, uh, to to collect data on QSOFA because they don't have, it's not just because it's inaccurate, but it's not registers, registered in the uh, patient's charts. Uh, so it might be, but I'm not sure. As I said, this is very preliminary data. But what we think is that uh, the need for these two uh, components will select in our environment a population that is very, very sick because it's going to be too late, because we are always late in, our, in the middle in, low and middle-income countries. But I agree, it, it might be uh, because of the respiratory rate, but it's just too early to say. We're going uh, to wait until the end of this year when we think we're going to have around uh, 10,000 patients to better analyze all this data. Right. Um, the next question, I think this will be the last one for you, Flavia. Uh, in resource-limited countries, not all the lab tests are available to calculate the SOFA score. How should we address that issue? Uh, uh, I don't think that we need to use the SOFA score. We have to separate things. The new definition of sepsis, if you look at the document, is the presence of infection and organ dysfunction. So I think that we need to focus on this and stay with the broad definition of any organ dysfunction. When you look at the variation in SOFA score, these are going to be very hard to do because we don't have, we don't have the data, even if you do it prospectively, assessing your patient, but you don't have it retrospective for the database, for instance. So it's very hard to use the variation of SOFA score, even for research, even for uh, clinical trials. But it's certainly impossible to use the variation of SOFA score in quality improvements initiative or as a bedside physician. Bedside nurses and physicians should not change the way they look at sepsis, and they have to keep uh, looking at any patient with a source of infection and any organ dysfunction as a septic patient. You intimated that Quicksulfur is a good screening instrument to recognize the very sick patient. And in that context, do you feel that early introduction of norepinephrine may be helpful in these patients? No, I don't think so. I think that uh, unless this patient is already critically ill and not admitted in the ICU, and uh, for this uh, he's already been receiving lots of lots of fluids, all the first resuscitation should be based on fluids and not in the early introduction of norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is the first choice vasopressure after the patient has received at least 30 ml per kilo of any fluids. So I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, we have to restrain the use of vasopressures until we have already resuscitated our patient with fluids. Okay, good. So you're intimating that we should stick with fluid as a first line until we know better. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Flavia. Um, I do see a Thank few you. more questions. We will try and uh, catch them at the end of the presentations. 
Uh, but we really need to move on to our next speaker. Our next speaker is Bindu. He's currently Professor of Internal Medicine and Critical Care Medicine at the Medical ICU at Peking Union Medical College Hospital in Beijing, China. He's been driving the China Critical, Critical Care Clinical Trial Group since 2009, and this is a wonderful initiative to do some collaborative critical care research in mainland China. Bindu is going to speak to us about the challenges of sepsis management in China. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And my talk will be uh, the uh, challenges of sepsis uh, management in mainland China. And I have no conflicts of interest with regard to this topic. We all understand that the epidemiology of sepsis has been well uh, studied, extensively studied in developed countries such as European countries as well as North America. And a recent paper published in Blue Journal summarized uh, that uh, the uh, population-based incidence and mortality rate of sepsis is only available in some selected high-income countries and regions, and in which the uh, sorry, in which the uh, uh, authors estimated that the uh, uh, population incidence rate of sepsis was 430. Seven cases per 100,000 uh, population per year. So the estimate is that the uh, in the world that every year is there about 31.5 million people develop a sepsis with a mortality rate of around 20%. However, such kind of data are not available in mainland China as, uh, as what had, had, had you have seen in Brazil. And, uh, and uh, in in the slides we described the. Uh, uh, the uh, data from the uh, uh, two representative studies. One is conducted, conducted more than 10 years ago. That is the prospective cohort study conducted in 10 surgical ICUs. Also very small data, but anyway, this is the first report that has been published in the uh, peer-reviewed journals in, in which they also estimated the prevalence of severe sepsis in surgical patients it was around 9% with 28-day mortality rates as high as 45%. About five years later, we have accomplished a, a another prospective cohort study, uh, this time in 22 general ICUs and medical ICUs, and we estimated that the prevalence of severe sepsis and septic shock was approximately 37%, and with ICU mortality as high as uh, around 40, 40%. And uh, so when we compare our data with the, uh, those of the uh, European countries, we can see that the prevalence rates of the uh, sepsis in the intensive care in, the China, in China that is comparable is approximately the uh, average level of the European countries. However, the population-based epidemiological, uh, 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 epidemiological studies of sepsis is quite difficult, especially in China, because the current data is only available inside the ICU with small sample size we have just outlined. And we understand from the literature that many septic patients are being managed uh, outside the ICU. And what is peculiar to China is that we have a large uh, floating population. Uh, for example, in the year of 2014, according to the Chinese government, the floating population was around uh, 253 million people, which means that one out of every six Chinese citizens be belongs to this group. And it is more than the population of the number four most populated country, uh, uh, country in the world. So therefore, we carefully selected 
a a sub district in the city of Beijing with uh, 26 communities in the in an area of more than four square kilometers. And the population, adult population in this area in the year of 2010 is almost 130,000. And the uh, total hospitalizations during the two-year study period is 22,552, among whom we identified a total of uh, 1,716 patients with sepsis and therefore corresponding to the uh, standardized incidence rates of 461 uh, cases of sepsis per 100,000 population per year, and the standardized mortality rate is 79 case death uh, per 100,000 uh, population per year. And so when we compare our data with that as reported in the Blue Journal, we can see that the population incidence rates of, rather, of sepsis is rather comparable. So every year there are about uh, 5 million people, adult patients, will uh, suffer from sepsis, and uh, almost 20% of them die. So corresponding to uh, approximately uh, 800,000 uh, 800, deaths per year in mainland China. And, and uh, in, in the slides we plotted the, uh, the uh, incidence, the population incidence rates of sepsis in China and compared it with those reported in North America, Australia, and European countries. And here we can see that the uh, incidence rates of sepsis are rather comparable to those reported in the United States, especially during the recent years. And in terms of the other epidemiological study of sepsis in China, I would say the, uh, uh, we, st we are still lacking the uh, nationwide and population-based data. And currently, we are conducting a collaborative research with the China CDC trying to estimate the uh, annual deaths uh, uh, secondary to sepsis. And we are successfully getting the uh, about 26 uh, 26% of the uh, national deaths data. So try to validate. The, uh, our previous, you know, you know, research results, and in, in addition, the long-term sequelae of sepsis are less well studied in mainland China. And as far as I know, that there is one study uh, that tried to follow up the uh, more than 800 uh, sepsis survivors uh, about one year. And after the publication of the new definition of sepsis, we are uh, still conducting a, a study to try to validate the quick sulfur in the high-risk patients in the general world rather than the ICUs. And so now, now let's discuss about the, uh, the uh, uh, treatment of the sepsis. And we, we all understand surviving sepsis contain highly recommended the uh, uh, three-hour and six-hour bundles. And although we don't have the data for the, any data uh, with regards to the compliance rate to the new bundles, we do have the, uh, the data uh, with regards to the original uh, resuscitation and management bundle. And here we can see the uh, overall compliance rates are quite low, uh, about 5.5% uh, to 8.5% with regards to the uh, resuscitation bundle and approximately 10% with regards to the uh, management bundle. In a very interesting study that came from our one of our colleagues, uh, showing that although they did not find any uh, correlation between the uh, 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 overall compliance rates to the resuscitative bundle and clinical outcome of patients with severe sepsis and septic shock, and they did they did found, uh, they did find the uh, as the numbers of accomplished bundle elements increased, the overall 
uh, uh, 28 mortality rates significantly decreased from 60% to approximately 20 to 30%, which is uh, with a p-value of 0.0116. And with uh, the uh, uh, target of the uh, uh, blood pressure, uh, uh, perfusion pressure is also important in the resuscitation phase of the patient with severe sepsis septic shock. As Asper pointed out, that the uh, uh, although the uh, primary outcome, which is the 28-day mortality rate, did not differ between the low and high target group, they did observe that for among patients with chronic hypertension, that the uh, those assigned to the uh, high target group had a better renal function, as uh, as shown by the uh, proportion of patients with doubling of the serum creatinine level decreased from 52% to 39%. And one another study from from China, which is a prospective single-center study, they tried to validate such kind of the uh, concepts. They in, enrolled a total of 19 patients with history of the, uh, the uh, hypertension and tried to uh, increase their uh, uh, mean arterial blood pressure from uh, the recommended 65 millimeters mercury to, the, to their ural level. And they, they did observe with the increase of the uh, uh, mean arterial blood pressure, they did observe a, a better microcirculation as shown by the uh, better perfused uh, vessel density, the proportion of perfused vessels, as well as the improved the, uh, the microvascular flow index. And other studies uh, concern the uh, the uh, so-called immunomodulatory effects of the simulsing alpha-1 in patients with severe sepsis. This is uh, a prospective randomized controlled trials involving more than 360 patients with severe sepsis, and the authors reported a significant improvement of the HLA BR uh, expression on day seven, and they did observe a non-significant reduction of the 28-day mortality rate from 35% down to the 60 uh, t uh, 26%. And uh, and here we can see that the, upon the search of the PubMed, we can see uh, over the uh, last two decades, the publications from mainland China concerning sepsis and sepsis-related problems has significantly increased. And um, in these slides, we summarize a, a, a some of the uh, the uh, multi-center clinical trials RCTs that I have known that registered on the uh, the clinical trial website, uh, uh, which has been completed or either in the planning phase in mainland China, that these uh, RCTs concerns that the choice of the uh, visual process in early resuscitation, the use of the anticoagulation in severe sepsis, again the uh, thymosine alpha one, as well as the anti-inflammatory agents unilateral. Ulinastating uh, in the treatment of the severe sepsis and septic shock, and we'll keep an eye on what is going on with their final results. And uh, however, before we successfully identify any uh, effective, definitive, and any supportive therapy for the patient with sepsis, I do believe that the early recognition and treatments remain the cornerstone, as outlined by Dr. Lili in his editorial accompanying the uh, publication of the process trial in the England Journal of Medicine. And however, we do understand from our study in the uh, community, in the population, uh, in the community, that we know that more than 86% of patients of sepsis are being managed outside the ICU, that is, in general words. And even for patients with severe sepsis, more than 60% are, uh, are treated in the general words. However, the 
limited data available show that the uh, compliance rate to the resuscitation bundle is very poor in the emergency department and even poorer in the general world. So I do believe that the challenges of, a severe, of sepsis management in mainland China will include the, uh, the better understanding of the disease burden, the provision of affordable and optimal care, and uh, improvement in, in terms of the education awareness and the promotion of the uh, early re uh, recognition and treatment, as well as better sepsis research. With that, I thank you very much for your attention. Andrew, thank you so much uh, for that lovely oversight. I see some very, very good questions for you. Let's start with the, a, a fundamental question, which is, what is the main cause of sepsis in China? Uh, well, our uh, study in the community I just mentioned that showed that the uh, lower respiratory tract infection is still the number one, the number one, you know, causes of sepsis and severe sepsis in mainland China, as, at least in the community. Okay, we seem to have lost him there for a moment. I, I, I see some questions which are more general, and I would like to pose it to any one of our panelists. I see Flavia, you still on. Maybe you would like to tackle this question about the role of the clinical pharmacist in improving sepsis care. Any comment about that? Yes, uh, we do think that the pharmacists are a key uh, professional to, to get in any quality improvement initiative. Uh, actually, lastly, when uh, we start to uh, help a hospital with the quality improvement uh, and sepsis protocols implementation, we always require that somebody from the pharmacy is included in the sepsis team because when we, uh, when we, uh, uh, we, uh, we, uh, Say to this uh, professionals, the pharmacist, how important it is. The first hour the antibiotics and uh, all things related to this, they are really helpful in managing to have antibiotics in any hospital places, like in the emergency room and the wards and uh, in the ICU. I don't know about other countries, but in Brazil, usually we have centralized pharmacies, and this is a, uh, this is an issue when we are talking about early administration of uh, antibiotics. So it's uh, very important to, to raise awareness among pharmacists and having them with us in the sepsis team. Okay, great. Uh, we're going to move on to our next speaker now. Thank you, Flavia. Uh, Praveen Amin is the Head of Critical Care at Bombay Hospital Institute of Medical Sciences in Mumbai. He's consultant in critical care medicine at the Breach Candy Hospital as well. He's the founder and executive committee member and past president of the Indian Society of Critical Care Medicine an old friend and a keen worker on sepsis and other problems in India. Praveen, thank you so much, and he's going to talk to us about the challenges of sepsis management in India. Welcome, Praveen. Thank you, Sat, for that very kind introduction, and nice to hear your voice again. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all the listeners around the world. I'm going to quickly fly through because I've got a whole lot of slides to show you. Show you. And uh, what I'm going to be really uh, telling you is about the challenges we pay, face in this part of the world. And uh, we'll first look at our epidemiology. And uh, we've got a lot of 
new emerging data, and we've published some of them recently. And the INDICAP study is what we've recently published in the Indian Journal of Critical Care Medicine earlier this April. And this was a point prevalence study. It was one-day study on four separate days. This was done on July 10th, uh, July 14, 2010, October 2010, and January 2011, and April 2011. What we wanted to address was looking at various seasons. For example, tropical illness was very common in the monsoon season. And of course, those, uh, the flus were more common during winter. So we wanted to get snapshots of uh, sepsis addressing uh, you know, these particular disease status uh, in our part of the world. And we recruited 4,038 uh, 4, ICU patients from 120 ICUs. And we had a mortality of about 24%, 992 patients died. And this study, called as the Indicap study, uh, is uh, easily available from our journal site. It's freely downloadable. This was a web-based survey. Uh, we looked at Apache scores, SOFA scores, looked at infections, interventions, and antibiotics. The endpoints were ICU mortality uh, in terms of and the terminal discharges from the ICU. And we looked at tropical illnesses. Uh, for malaria, it was suspected or confirmed, uh, as we have problems in sometimes in diagnosis, and we look at clinical diagnosis in such situation. We looked at dengue, leptospirosis, and scrub typhus during the ICU stay. What we did find was in severe sepsis uh, and septic shock was diagnosed in about 1,144 patients, of which 64% were male. Uh, infection developed in the ICU was about 20%. Of the 1,000-odd patients that uh, was about 28%. We had in about 53 plus or minus 17. The Apache score was 20 and the SOFA score was first 5.9 plus, uh, plus or minus 4.3 and the ICU mortality was 42%. Whereas those patients who didn't have severe sepsis had a mortality of 17.6%. Uh, if you look at patients' characteristics on survivors and non-survivors, uh, medical patients uh, had a higher, there were more medical patients. Obviously, there were more deaths in the medical patients. The patients with the higher Apache and SOFA scores uh, were seen in the non-survivors. Likewise, they were, uh, they were more mechanically ventilated in the non-survivors, 73 versus 46% in the survivors. Vasopressors were clearly more in this group of patients, uh, uh, who died, and of course, renal replacement therapy was more in these group of patients. Understandably, as the organ failures increased, the mortality clearly increased in these group of patients. When we looked at sites of infection and outcomes in these group of patients, the highest mortality was seen in patients with CNS infections. And of course, um, uh, pneumonias, and GI infections also had a higher mortality. The mortality was clearly low in patients with urinary tract infections and in the group of patients who had tropical infections. So clearly, uh, the survival was better in patients who had tropi tropical severe sepsis due to tropical infections. 
as when we categorized these patients into tropical versus non-tropical, it was seen that, of course, the patients with tropical infections were younger. Uh, they did have a lower Apache score and a SOFA score as compared to non-tropical infections. Likewise, the SOFA scores. The SOFA scores were more in patients who had tropical infections. And the survival was clearly better, 30% as opposed to 45% in patients who did not have tropical infections in terms of severe sepsis. In terms of microorganisms isolated and uh, about 900 and about 80% of these patients, the cultures were sent. They were positive in 40%. Uh, we had nearly 576 organisms identified, uh, polymicrobial in one forty of them. Predominant organisms were gram-negative, nearly 70% in this population. Uh, when we look at the different types of gram-negative organisms, we found that Pseudomonas was really high in the list, followed by Acinetobacter, and then the Klebsiella and the E. coli. Uh, so 70% of this were gram-negative, and we had gram-positive, both MRSA, MSSA, and we did see some enterococcus vancomycin sensitive, and about 8% of patients had candidemia. And uh, this, there were 60% were albicans and about 34% which were non-albicans. Uh, again, the antibiotic pattern was very varied. There were patients who were on single antibiotics, about 27%, 35% had two antibiotics, and of course, a group of patients, 20% had three antibiotics, and a smaller group of 8% had eight antibiotics. And this seems to be a problem, which I'll address a little later. Looking at multivariate analysis, clearly patients with SOFA scores, high SOFA scores, mechanical ventilation, patients on vasopressors uh, clearly had a higher, patients who were on higher doses of vasopressors had a higher mortality. Patients with tropical illness had better survival. And of course, patients who had infections which developed in the ICU had worse outcome. Medical patients uh, were did worse than surgical simply because probably we had more medical patients in this uh, study. So when we look at the conclusions in this study, we really find that tropical infections uh, had better survival and medical admissions tend to do worse in our group of patients. And there was considerable use of carbapenems. We also look at another subset, which we, uh, another study which we participated with our colleagues from Korea, and this was an Asian, which is called as Asian ICU study. And we looked at, uh, this was a prospective study called as the Mosaic study. And this is again a prospective observational study, non-interventional. Uh, and uh, we were looking at uh, compliance of Asian ICUs to surviving sepsis campaign. And this is an earlier study, so you would, you would see some data in where we use activated protein C. Uh, outcomes of severe sepsis was looked at in this and the compliance to the sepsis bundle. As you can see, it was categorized. There were 116 countries which participated. 150 ICUs, 1,200 odd patients. Uh, they were divided into three categories, low income, uh, middle income, and of course, high income uh, group. And uh, what we found, we've got nearly 1,285 patients. Uh, the primary outcomes 
were looking at compliance to the 6-hour and 24-hour bundles and second, uh, secondary outcome was all-cause mortality. Uh, pretty high mortality again, 44%. Uh, and of course, what was very astonishing was we found the compliance rate for the resuscitation bundle and the management bundle was a pitiable single-digit 7.6%. So clearly, uh, you know, people were not very compliant with the surviving sepsis guidelines. Uh, independent predictors of reduction mortality was blood cultures, which were achieved in 62%, broad-spectrum antibiotics, and here uh, the CVP, which was achieved only in 40% 40 of the patients. Uh, High-income countries, university hospitals and ICUs, all with an accredited fellowship program uh, and surgical ICUs were more likely to be compliant with the resuscitation bundle. Uh, as uh, you can see, the measuring lactate was only seen 40%, blood cultures 52%, broad-spectrum antibiotics was given in 62%. People were more compliant with fluids and with uh, using vasopressors, 84% were compliant with that and 50% achieved the CVP target, and only 17% looked at SCBO2. Uh, the Indian population, too, in the study, uh, uh, in terms of compliance, was pretty low uh, in that group. As you, The general compliance, if you look in all the countries, were in the, in, in the single-digit range, so pretty non-compliant in terms of the bundles which were used. Uh, again, uh, in the higher income countries, there seemed to be better compliance as opposed to the lower income countries. So, mortality from severe sepsis in the mosaic study was pretty high. Compliance to resuscitation bundle was generally poor, uh, you know, and patients who achieved CVP targets and blood glucose control and low tidal volume uh, were independently associated with improved survival. Uh, there was certain organizational capacity in terms of open versus closed ICUs, and uh, that seemed to be uh, uh, that seems to be something uh, that, uh, in terms of intensivist cover and nurses ratio, which made to made uh, where there was more compliance in in an intensivist run ICU. We also have some data in terms of a registry which we have in this college from the Rafter, and it's a successor of the Rafting. Uh, which is uh, rational fluid therapy in general. This is still not published. It's awaiting publication. And what we we participated, we had three countries participating in this, uh, that is India, Malaysia, and Taiwan, uh, about 24 hospitals. India contributed, you know, 18 hospitals participated from India, four from uh, Malaysia, and two from Taiwan. Again, in this study, uh, in the Indian population, the mortality seemed to be pretty high. So across the board, we find that mortality uh, in severe sepsis was between 40 to 50 percent, and that's unacceptable. Uh, what are the reasons for this high morbidity and mortality? We'll address each one of them, and uh, resource crunch uh, is one of the issues. Delay in receiving appropriate care, knowledge, distribution of care, and antibiotic resistance. Uh, resource crunch, clearly, as you can see, uh, the, uh, the GDP uh, is clearly low in India. Uh, you know, the percentage on health spent is about 3.9% as opposed to 18% in the U.S., Expenditure per capita is low in this part of the world. 
uh, in India, in terms of out-of-pocket uh, uh, expenditure seems to be pretty high uh, as opposed to only 1% in terms of insurance and government co covers about 20%. Uh, we did the, the ICON uh, audit, which was done by the World Federation in the 10,000-odd patients, which Jean-Louis Vincent published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine a couple of years ago. India contributed about 1,000 patients to this. What was seen is in patients with uh, the mortality was clearly associated high mortality uh, in low-income group patients uh, as opposed to the high and middle-income uh, uh, countries. Uh, and this was again shown that this is probably because of uh, the uh, lack of critical care facilities and the mortality clearly increased because of the uh, lack of availability of critical care resources, and that's the reason, one of the reasons why mortality seems to be very high. Delay in receiving appropriate care is another concern, and this may be one of the reasons, though we have improved emergency medical services, this is something that is very common now in our major cities, major traffic jams, and in rural parts, the long distances to reach a good facility Education is something that uh, the Indian Society of Critical Care Medicine has, we have now moved over the years from 1999, uh, uh, achieved about 142 centers where training in critical care is imparted. So the society is trying to address that in terms of distribution of care, uh, you know, in terms of knowledge and compliance, for example, hand washing, uh, a low compliance seen among medical care workers. And look again, when we looked at the organization characteristics, again, an important parameter which determines uh, quality of care. And uh, what we're trying to implement is quality indicators, and most some hospitals have now got this on board. Uh, another major concern in this part of the world is antibiotic resistance. And clearly, there are a host of uh, conditions where nosocomial infections, which are resistant due to, you know, uh, uh, ESBLs and carbapenems and uh, NDMs and the KPCs, which are very prevalent in this part of the world. And again, that's due to lack of antibiotic stewardship and also due to lack of proper, uh, you know, uh, control or over the antibiotic usage and indiscriminate use of antibiotics. That itself is another discussion, point of discussion. And this is being seen in the community as well as the nosocomial region. And uh, we have recently had publications for resistance in fungus, likewise, in the, uh, which came out from uh, northern part of India showing resistance in candida too. These are areas of concern. Nutrition is something that uh, is seen, uh, and especially uh, uh, in this publication, showing that medical patients are probably more malnourished, and that's something which may be affecting mortality. And I'm going to wind up here. We all want to achieve some degree of uh, improvement of care in our part of the world, and we know that sepsis has shown in this study from down under that the sepsis incidence are increasing. However, the mortality uh, seems to be decreasing in that part of the world, in the developing world, and we hope to achieve this kind 
of uh, survival in our patients in in this part of the world too. Uh, thank you very much for a very patient hearing. Thanks, Praveen. Um, one quick question for you before we move on to our last presenter. Um, is there a difference in the outcome from sepsis when you compare urban to rural populations? Unfortunately, you know, uh, most of the good intensive care is in in the urban in the urban areas in terms of both private and government most of the urban centers would impart high quality care the facilities in rural areas are in fact wanting and there likewise we would we would strongly believe though we have no data from the rural areas we would strongly believe that there is a paucity of data from that part of the world, uh, that part of the uh, country, and we probably do not have high-quality uh, services uh, in rural centers, and I hope uh, the government really begins to address such issues. Uh, but in urban centers around the major towns and cities, uh, the the quality of uh, critical care has clearly improved, uh, and I I believe probably uh, you know it would improve over time. Though as you can see from our large data set, that our mortalities are still pretty high in the 45 percent range, uh, which we hope uh, we are able to reduce over time. Thanks, Praveen. Uh, we're going to move on to our last speaker for this session, and that is Andrew Argent, another old friend. Andrew has worked in critical care in Cape Town for more than 25 years, I think. He directs the largest pediatric intensive care unit in Africa and is past president of the World Federation of Pediatric Intensive and Critical Care Societies. His particular interest is in the provision of care to critically ill children in countries across the globe, and in particular in resource-limited settings. Andrew is going to take us through a very important problem, which is barriers to change in resource-poor settings. Thanks, Andrew, and nice to hear from you again. Thank you very much. Thanks for the introduction, and sorry for the technical hitch there. Um, really, greetings to people across the world, and it's Thanks to the organizers for inviting me to be part of this wonderful opportunity and presentation. Um, what I'm going to be trying to do over the next while is to talk or to continue to talk about some of the barriers to the management of children with severe sepsis across the world, and I really am going to focus on the issues of children. I had no conflicts of interest for this presentation, but I do come from Cape Town, and I work in a hospital that has many of the first world and high-tech facilities for the care of children. But what I'd like to do is to first start about talking something about resource set, poor settings across the world. You've already heard from Latin America, from India, from China, and We've already heard something about the issues in Africa, but I want to pick up on just what we mean by resource-poor settings, talk a little about the current profile, and then go on to talk about those barriers to change. So if you look at where children die across the world, and you can see in this 
this picture that the darker red or brown colors are associated with much higher mortality, you can really see that there's a huge focus of under five mortality in countries such as Africa, some parts of Asia. If you look at this data, which shows on the x-axis the income per capita in dollars, that's US dollars, ranging from some $200 through to some $50,000 per capita per annum. And on the y-axis, the child's mortality rate or death under five per thousand live births. And that too is a log scale starting from two and a half, ranging right up to 650. And what you can see clearly from this is that while there's a reasonable correlation with income, the higher your income, the lower the child mortality is likely to be, there are also discrepancies. And one can see that if you look at the countries with an income of somewhere around $15,000 per capita per annum, the range in under five mortality goes from South Africa with somewhere around 45 to 50, Brazil somewhere around 10 to 15, and Serbia somewhere around five. And what that's telling us is that it's not just your income that affects the outcome of children and what happens to them, but it's actually the whole business of how you organize health services, what resources are made available to those services. And it's ironic that if you look at the United States and compare that with Hong Kong, the United States has one of the highest healthcare expenditures in the world, and yet there are other countries who have much lower under five mortality. It's also worth noting that if you look at this graph, the countries that are outlined in blue are largely those of Africa and largely those are the countries that have the extremely high mortality. The countries in pink are those from Asia, and again, you can see that they are responsible for a very high proportion of the under five mortality. But let's put some of those healthcare resources into more detail. So here's some data from 2012. And what you can see is that the total healthcare expenditure in the U.S. per capita at that time was about $8,000. In Ethiopia, that was 50. If you actually look at government health expenditure, you're comparing about 4,000 in the U.S. with 26 in Ethiopia. And in between that, you have a wide range with a whole group of countries such as Africa, Malaysia, Brazil, spending somewhere around the $300 per capita per annum. And of course, what goes with that expenditure is that the number of physicians per thousand population vary quite substantially from two and a half in the US down to less than 0.03 per thousand population in Ethiopia. And clearly what that means is that we can't have the same approach to severe sepsis in different parts of the world. I also think it's important to look at the population profile. And if you look at this picture of the age distribution in Japan, and, and many of the first world and developed countries have similar age distribution, you'll find that the median age is 46. And in other words, nearly half the population is over the age of 50. And a very small proportion of the population is actually in the pediatric age group. If you go to the other extreme, though, what you can see in Ethiopia 
is that the median age is 18.9. In other words, half the population is pediatric, and actually a very large chunk of that pediatric population is under the age of five. So again, what you're seeing is the need for health services to children by a population that has limited number of older and experienced and trained people and doing that with limited resources. If you look across the world at predicted at cause-specific mortality rates, you'll see in green the mortality rates from 2013. You'll see that across the world, sepsis is a significant issue with pneumonia, neonatal infections, diarrhea, malaria, neonatal pneumonia, meningitis, and infectious diseases such as pertussis, measles, etc., as major causes of mortality. And importantly, the predicted cause-specific mortality rate across the globe for 2030 still includes a very high proportion of infection-related and severe sepsis. And so in the resource-limited countries, we are talking about a large pediatric population in fact, outnumbering the adult, the older population, a high burden of disease and limited resources. And sadly, as Kath Maitland has pointed out and some of the other speakers have pointed out, most of the data coming from on how to manage severe sepsis actually comes from the rich countries of the world. But let's look at a little bit more detail at some of the local barriers in the environment to actually dealing with severe sepsis. Some years ago, we completed a study looking at the pathways to care, or how do children in our community get from first contact with healthcare services through to intensive care services. Importantly, that study didn't include all the patients who died possibly of severe sepsis without even accessing healthcare services. What we found in that was that access to healthcare services, as mentioned by several speakers in the session, was a major issue. And you actually have to look at the local geography. This is a Google map photograph of one of the highly populated poorer areas of our city, and you can imagine that access from that place to healthcare services is very different to those linked into the leafy suburbs of our city. By the same token, if you live in rural areas, rural desert areas, the issues of access to healthcare services are hugely different. But it's not only about the geography. A huge component of what causes or allows delivery or access to healthcare services depends on healthcare providers. You can see on this map in front of you that the dark colors of the world, which happen to coincide with where the high under five mortality across the world is and where the high incidence of sepsis across the world is, are also countries with a critical shortage of healthcare providers. That creates a problem of access to health care during working hours. But as pointed out by several workers with Medicine Sans Frontier and many others, the problem is far worse after hours when there is extremely limited access to health care. And I'll point out again that three quarters of the week is outside of working hours in most parts of the world. 
So there's a profound issue of access and problems with access for many of the patients who have sepsis and severe sepsis across the world. The next issue is that when patients do actually get to healthcare services with problems related to severe sepsis, there's a whole issue with organization. And as has been pointed out by some of the previous speakers, in order for a child to get the management they require for severe sepsis, it requires an integrated function of the entire health system through from first presentation to the point where they can get much more definitive care. And we have data from across the world over many years now showing that organizational structures to provide for the critically ill or those with severe sepsis need multiple components. Trevor Duke and others have shown that you have to be able to provide oxygen monitoring and therapy with, for children with severe pneumonia. But to do that, you actually have to find equipment that is robust and can cope with power outages. You have to find structures that allow you to purchase, maintain, distribute that equipment in countries where many of the issues like maintenance, distribution, and support services are actually very limited. Trevor Duke, Mike English, and others have shown across the world that actually sick children are very poorly cared for at many district hospitals. Again, that's a resource issue. It's an organizational issue. But if that level of care doesn't work, many of those children simply will not have access. Liz Molyneux and others have shown working in places like Malawi that you can make huge difference to the outcome of acute care for children in tertiary hospitals in countries like Malawi simply by improving structure and organization. And that's something clearly that we need to look at and consider. And that's just a picture of Liz working with one of the patients in Malawi. So that's something about the, the population, the pressure that goes on, the environment we need to talk to, the organizational structure that's required for emergency care of critically ill septic patients. But what's also been alluded to is that many of these countries that we're talking about simply have incredibly deficient laboratory and diagnostic services. One of the huge problems as we talk about sepsis is that in many of these countries, you cannot get a culture. You cannot get a lab result within 12 hours of admission. And that clearly is a huge challenge. If you take that further, there are antibiotics such as meropenem and vancomycin that are available in some of the poorest countries of the world but those countries are providing those antibiotics with no facility to culture the organisms, to monitor the levels, and to optimize the therapeutics of what they're doing. And Pravin has already alluded to the disaster that is awaiting us as we develop antibiotic resistance across the world. And the whole pharmaceutical support industry is a major barrier to the care of severe sepsis. But it's not only the laboratory, it's issues such as imaging. How do you actually get the x-rays, the chest x-rays, the CTs and those? And I think one of the huge things 
that has the potential to transform imaging in many of the poorer countries of the world and, and in the rich is the whole benefit of ultrasound point of care and physician-driven imaging using robust ultrasound equipment, which is increasingly easy to use. One of the things that we haven't talked about is where the resources are. And one of the issues across the developing world is that a lot of the resources that should be available to patients are actually sucked up in the private sector. And that has multiple ramifications. That relates to who's available to treat patients in the public sector after hours. It relates to the educational issues that have been raised by many people. In many countries, the people who should be training the junior staff, the nursing staff, the people doing the frontline care are actually too busy earning a reasonable income in the private sector. And that's not necessarily their fault. That often has to do with where the money has chosen to be spent by the, by the organization, by the political leaders of the time. And I think a huge issue that we need to talk about as we talk about barriers to managing severe sepsis is the allocation of resources and understanding of what the private sector in each part of the world does. And there are huge variations between low and middle income countries and some of the higher income countries. And then, as I've alluded to, to talk to the resources allocated to pediatric care. Finally, one of the things that's absolutely fundamental to making a change to the outcome of children with severe sepsis is the need to actually provide appropriate therapy. One of the huge surprises, as Kath has pointed out, is that our expectation is that what works in the first world will work in the poorer world. And Kath's data, the FEAST study, showed that that is not always true. And there's a desperate need to link to data that is actually real to the poorer countries. And so just to summarize, we speak a lot about sepsis across the world, and actually severe sepsis is a major cause of morbidity and mortality for children in resource-poor countries. We've highlighted some of the issues of those countries and some of the barriers. And if we're going to change things, we need to focus locally, focus not only on clinical parameters, but things such as infrastructure and development of medical support services. If we don't find local data, it's very difficult to motivate people locally, and it's extremely difficult to provide appropriate care. And so possibly some of the things to consider would be shown by this mnemonic of people but ironically, I leave you with a sense that what is going to change the outcomes for sepsis is the energy, commitment, and involvement of the people on the ground level. Thanks very much for your attention. Andrew, thank you so much. That was a very nice uh, description of the major areas that we need to be applying our minds to. Um, I've seen a lot of questions that have been coming through that kind of uh, address the issues that you have put in nice perspective for us. I wonder if you could tackle two of them for me. 
Um, yeah, I can try. We understand the, the need to, to treat early and effectively with antibiotics. And we understand the, the lack of specificity with the, the SERS definition. Conversely, if you wait until people have severe established multi-organ failure and then introduce antibiotics, that's going to be too little too late. Um, yeah. On the flip side is this question of antibiotic stewardship in terms of saying if we continue to use antibiotics without control, we're going to have a crisis in terms of having limited access to effective therapy. What for you is a nice kind of balancing point for this uh, dilemma? Well, Tex, I think a couple of points on that. I mean, one is there's no doubt that providing access to resource-limited communities or providing access for them to antibiotics can be life-saving. And people like Zulfi Butta have shown in Bangladesh and other areas that if you can provide community healthcare workers with antibiotics such as penicillin, gentamicin, and those can be given when children first present in that setting, that you can significantly drop mortality. And I, I, I think so there's an issue to get it out there. I think for me the issue is that starting early is not necessarily what drives antibiotic resistance. What drives resistance is ongoing and continuing therapy and particularly the use of very broad-spectrum antibiotics. And I think the challenge is try and make antibiotics available for emergency care but then focus very carefully on how we can actually stop antibiotics as soon as possible. And in many cases, if there was a way of highlighting which is malaria, which is viral, which is non-bacterial, that would be a way of addressing that issue. I don't know if that answers your question. No, I think that's, that's helpful. Um, I think the other point that you, you emphasized is this difficulty in trying to apply limited capacity to tackling this problem, uh, particularly in relation to skilled healthcare workers. Um, and I think the urban-rural dichotomy is also a challenge. Um, what do you see as possible ways to optimize utilization of limited healthcare workers? Yeah. So, I think there are a number of ways. I mean, ironically, although many people, many of these countries are resource limited, the one resource they have plenty of is people. Um, and I think we have to start looking at ways of using a broader brand of people and community healthcare workers and volunteers in some ways in this process, in the educational process and developing things. I think the other thing that I'd say is that in many countries, people have tried to bring on board things such as intensive care, ventilation for children, mechanical ventilation, often with very poor outcomes for quite significant expenditure. And one of the things we could be doing is to throw much more effort into technologies such as high-flow oxygen CPAP which have been demonstrated to actually significantly drop mortality in countries such as Bangladesh, Malawi, and other areas. And the beauty about something like those technologies is they cost much less, 
and the training required for people to implement them successfully is substantially lower than for technologies such as mechanical ventilation. And finally, the infrastructure required to maintain those technologies is orders of magnitude lower than mechanical ventilation. And so perhaps we should be focusing at some of the interventions that are actually lower cost that have been shown to have effect in those communities. Right. Um, I see a whole host of questions here, and I'm going to pose this one to, to, to the whole group. And anybody who feels um, inclined to answer, please step in and speak. The question is, what is the role of the World Health Organization in terms of giving guidance about effective use of antibiotics, in terms of allocating resources more effectively, um, what kind of value can they add to improving the way we provide care? Andrew, since you're the last guy in residence. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> look, look, Seth, I'm happy to say some things, and obviously I can't speak on behalf of the WHO. I mean, my understanding is that the WHO can make recommendations to countries as to what would be appropriate ways to approach things. And I, I think making those recommendations is obviously some of their role. I do think there's a place for putting in recommendations and processes that say when will a certain level of intervention such as intensive care, such as levels of respiratory support, make a difference to the mortality in your country. And I think if they were able to provide that kind of advisory service to provide some focus as to where resources should be allocated and when it makes sense to start pushing resources towards higher technology and intensive care, I think that would be helpful in many of the poorer countries of the world. Right. Uh, Kevin, this question, I think, uh, might be uh, up your alley. The question is, what do you think are some of the ways to encourage research in resource-limited communities where resources are primarily focused on treatment? Any thoughts on that? So that's maybe one comment that I could just put in there okay. is that one of the huge things, and I think you've got that experience about having data about what happens, is that you have real tools to talk to the healthcare managers, the politicians, and the people who allocate resources in your country. And if people could be given some simple tools and encouraged to collect data that would make a difference to their motivation, to their advocacy, and to their processes in their country, I believe that would be really useful. I suspect Kath Maitland could tell you a lot more about how the resource that's been, the research that's been completed in East Africa has actually translated into changes in policy and changes in educational programs. Right. Okay. Um, Even in Brazil, we had a, sorry. Go ahead, Flavia. You can go on, Seth. 
No, no, just no, a short comment on this. Uh, some years ago, some years ago, Lazi uh, did manage to have a meeting on the National Congress, and uh, a huge program that we have after that was very, very good for us. We trained almost 400 hospitals because we did this that day. We went to the Congress and we showed uh, the congressman uh, the the data we have at that moment, and it was just in the beginning. I think our database at that time has 5,000 patients, and we showed this bad numbers about Brazilian mortality rate, and it did help. So I, I do think that we need data. That was my first, uh, my first point yes. in my presentation. The absence of data is a problem because we are always using data from the high-income countries. Right. Okay, I need to wrap things up because we have a, a few seconds to go. First of all, thank you so much to all our presenters. I thought that was an exceptional session highlighting uh, lots of the challenges, but also the opportunities. And I think you all did a good job of pointing out important steps, collecting data, optimizing the use of existing resources, building bridges across these challenges that we face rather than seeing them as insurmountable obstacles, uh, making sure that we ensure the, the human capacity and then trying to find steps by aligning healthcare providers with the managers and the government and the health departments to ensure that this problem becomes uh, something that is uh, addressed by all rather than just clinicians who are interested in improving the care of people. I'm going to close by giving you a few comments about the GSA and World Sepsis Day. Please become a supporter, as you can see on this slide. We believe this is a key step towards improving the ways that we think about and manage sepsis. World Sepsis Day is on September 13. Please go to the website, sign the declaration, and then participate in any possible way that you can. That's going to be a crucial uh, step for us moving forward with this problem. We would like to thank the sponsors who made this, I believe, a most incredibly successful a virtual meeting and a wonderful step forward for uh, the fight against sepsis. And without the help of our sponsors, such initiatives would not be able to be uh, realized. And then lastly, you can stay on the ongoing sessions that occur. Please feel free to join. And the questions that you've sent, if you feel like we haven't dealt with them, I've done my best to try and summarize and put things together. Please feel free to, to forward them, and then we would uh, respond to them individually. Thank you so much, everybody, for attending, and please enjoy the rest of the meeting. Thank you to our presenters. Goodbye to all. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with the session Pathogen Detection and Sepsis Markers 1 on December 16th. I hope I hear you there. Fail. Fail.